0: and it's where i want to sit this morning this this contrast between the now and the not yet i think the uh, what i what i want to, the big idea what i want to really talk about this morning is that the life of these chosen exiles you see those two words in that first that introductory line these elect exiles scattered and that just that, that, those two words next to each other is a whole sermon the, to, these, to these chosen exiles. I want to talk this morning about how the life of chosen exiles is rooted in a living hope in the now and not yet kingdom of God. See, taken as a whole, this passage exposes the great tension of the nature of salvation as now, right now, living in it. And not yet, not quite, still coming. In terms of now, there's words like chosen, obedient, sprinkled now, new birth now, living hope now, shielded now, we rejoice now, We, we, we go through grief and trials now, we do not see at this moment, but we have this inexpressible glorious joy now. And we're receiving now our salvation. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us now. And the angels are jealous now. They're jealous now. But also not yet. We have an inheritance that we don't, we don't quite have yet. It's not in our possession yet. We don't see the fullness of it yet. It'll never perish. It goes, it goes on and on into the future. It's kept for us in heaven. It will be revealed in the last time to to the eventual praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ in that final revelation the words of that intro are 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 the chosen exiles they it just captures this now and not not yet you're and he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles and those two words would come off very differently to those two audiences for him a Jewish person to write to a Gentile audience and to say you are the elect which is like this very Jewish word for like Chosen as God's people to represent Him in the world. You, you are in, you are cho- you're in the family. That's, that's, it's already insane. And then to simultaneously tell them exiles from a world that, they, as Gentiles, they're not actually exiles from. But to say you're chosen, which is not what you experience, and you're exiles, which is not what you experience. You are chosen exiles, elect exiles. This is what, you know, it already feels like they're, he's speaking something over them that's true, but they don't necessarily fully experience it as true. And it goes along with the whole kind of captured tension of the passage that this, this meta gift of salvation somehow has a, a, a temporal reality on the now, and yet it's not fully complete and it, and it transcends into eternity. It's now and not yet. It's, it's here, but it's near, but far. It's already, but not quite. This is, the theological term for this is inaugural eschatology. The, the, the eschatology is like the end of all things, the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus coming and returning and making right what is wrong, wiping every tear, coming in justice and final judgment, and, res, and, and heaven and earth kiss into eternity. And we live right now in the inaugural eschaton. We're not in the end We're not like like seeing that happen right now. It's coming. But it's already been inaugurated. It's already been announced. It's already been paid for. It's already been initiated in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. It is just yet to be administered. He he announced it. He, He shared a whole lot about it. He described it. It came near. He secured it. He paid for it. It's coming now by his presence, his indwelling presence in the world. But it will not come in its full administered revelation until another time, some time to come. It's like when I tell my five-year-old, if you throw your food on the floor one more time, you're going to go sit and time out. And then he drops one more blueberry and he stares at me. You see that timeout has been inaugurated it's been announced it's it's secured it's the moment the blueberry hit the floor that junk is paid for, uh, uh, but it 's not yet administered until I finish my cup of coffee it's coming it's you, and, and he can he can prepare for it. He looks at me imagining what his rear end is going to feel like on the hardwood floor in the corner of that kitchen he's going He's imagining how long, oh Lord, must I sit in this in this timeout how much when, what will I do when I'm there? What would it be like in that space? And yet we're still sitting in this in-between moment when it's inaugurated, but it has not yet fully come. Maybe a better example is if you buy like a, 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 a really nice decoration or wall mural or a piece of furniture for like a prominent space in your house. Maybe you buy it from Amazon, like a couch or recliner. It's coming, you know it's coming, you're excited about it. Maybe you got a deal on it, and you, you you don't know yet the day or the hour of its arrival, but you do know that it has been inaugurated, it's been announced, that charge went through on the credit card. You saw it. It is you are living in victory, it's coming, and and you start you start actually imagining what the living room will look like when it comes and where it'll go and you actually start preparing for it to come. It's not here yet, but you start going ahead and moving everything around, preparing for it. You have house meetings with everybody living in your in your community or in your family and you start to decide together and discern how should this look? What is the best efficient use of the space? Well, how are we cultivating an environment for this new recliner or new couch? How will it contribute to our family? And, and you start to design how it'll look and you and you start to hear phantom knocks. You start to think, is that FedEx? Is that was that UPS? Are they right outside? And you go outside and nobody's there. You just the anticipation of it is too real. You wake up in the morning thinking about when it will arrive. You see, we live in this lifelong tension of our greatest hope promised but not yet realized, secured but not yet administered, paid for but not yet shipped. And how do we as, as microchurch leaders, as called missionaries, as disciples, as sent ones, how do we live out our faith faithfully in that tension of the now and not yet? And I think this is a, a, a significant question, not just in this passage, but really a question dangling in the background of all of 1 Peter. So it's not, my, it's not necessarily my intention to perfectly answer that question this morning. It's my intention to say, hey, for, for a couple months here, we're going to be in that question. We're going to be sitting in that question together. Uh, um, but if I could just bring a little bit of perspective from this text to that question, I actually think how it looks to live in that tension can depend on the cultural location of the missionary, of the microchurch, of the leader, of the community. Whether or not the missionary community is contextually exiled or in a position of privilege and prominence in the world around them. In other words, is a Christian worldview at the center of of society or near the center or is it being consistently pushed to the margins of society and therefore are followers of Jesus feeling exiled in Babylon or do they actually feel uh, uh, in a position of privilege, and prominence with, 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 with room to operate without fear and room to dream and imagine. You see, a cultural position of exile pushes our gaze to the not yet. A, a cultural position of exile pushes our gaze to the future, to eternity, to the not yet, and sometimes at the expense of the now, to less consideration of the now. And most of the classic examples of messianic hope that we have in Scripture are examples of people carrying messianic hope in exile. Jeremiah, Daniel, Jesus, the early church, and I'll mention a few things about each of them in a minute, but these are people who are in exile in, in Babylon, Persia, Rome, carrying me, king, messianic hope and then eventually kingdom hope, final return hope, and leaning in uh, to the now and not yet. But in a position of exile... The, our gaze can turn toward and be saturated on the not yet, the future, the eternity. And what that'll do is it, it can actually produce a certain amount of good fruit. It has certain consequences, but it does produce a certain amount of good fruit. I think people who, who lean in to the not yet, who, whose gaze is upon the not yet, are obsessed with the not yet, those people have a more, I think, an enduring hope and I, because their hope is not actually rooted in the circumstances of now it's not it, it, like my hope actually is not touched at all by what's happening right now nothing can phase me good or bad because my hope is not in this my hope is not in what like what I'm experiencing what I see happening around me what I see happening in the world none of that none of that changes my hope because my hope is anchored in the promise of God in the future and so like people who gaze on the future and are just sitting in the future and sitting in eternal hope and sitting in the not yet have, have like, a, like an indomitable hope and an inexpressible joy. Because again, the, the anchor for their souls are in the promises of God that are not yet seen but are coming. And when their soul is anchored in the unseen, in the not yet, that's and that's where their if their soul is anchored there that means that's the dirt that's the source of their hope and their joy it's where it's coming from and the circumstances of right now in my life and the life of my family and the life of my microchurch in the city all that kind of stuff that stuff can be hard all kinds of grief and trial right that's what it says that stuff's going to be difficult it's not that it's not difficult it doesn't make it not it doesn't make it like you want that stuff to happen or anything but it doesn't completely shake hope and joy because I don't actually, I'm, I'm not, my soul is not anchored right now. It's anchored in the not yet. So enduring hope, inexpressible and glorious joy, and I think a proven faith is, is the other thing that this text reveals, that, that you're going to experience a little grief and trials of all kinds of, uh, and those things exist to show the proven genuineness of your faith which is actually like a little bit of a unique take on suffering from some of the stuff we've talked about over the last few months. We've, we've talked a whole lot, even Brad last week, we talked a whole lot about suffering produces character, and, and, and in suffering you're like in fellowship with God, and He's going to turn your suffering for good. All of, these are, all of these are pieces of a good, healthy theology of suffering. Uh, uh, that, it, that it, suffering produces endurance and hope and perseverance, and we fellowship with God in suffering, in the, in the sufferings of Christ. So we, we, we experience more of him, more intimacy with him in suffering, and suffering is going to be somehow turned and worked for our good, all these things. But he's not saying any of that. This isn't saying any of that. This is basically saying suffering proves whether or not you actually are real, like whether or not your faith is a real thing. That's a little sharp. Is that sharp to you? That's a little sharp. You know, all that other stuff is true, but this is basically just saying, you might not be a Christian if you haven't suffered. <laughs> like, like you, you will know if this thing is real, this thing that you've said, this thing that you've committed to is real when you suffer. It's similar, a little bit, it, it's similar to like a marriage covenant. Like, I'm committed to you, sickness and health, but you don't actually know if that's real until sickness, not health. I'm committed to you for richer or for poor, but you don't know if you're serious about that until you're poor. Not when you're rich. And the same goes for people who like are are right now single and might actually be considering or committing to lifelong singleness, which by the way, people who are currently single, people who want to commit to a life of singleness are held in the church in a position of high honor and value and esteem as some of the best among us. And those people, Amen. And those people, some of the people who are, like, wrestling with singleness, like, 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 like God might actually be calling me to have this, like, un, un, undivided focus on him for my life, a full, kind of, control, like, a complete calling to, to him. And they, they might actually make, like, a commitment to singleness. Again, it's like, I'm going to be single the rest of my life. And you might, you might not know if you're actually real about that until you're 40. And your and your 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 time to like have kids is running out, and your your and your family is just getting more and more pressurized, right? Every family gathering, you just want to leave. Everybody's going all crazy, popping off, all that kind of stuff. And we're living a culture that like the the, the 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 confines of the family and the force of marital coupling is so volatile that singleness, people in singleness are lonely, which isn't right, by the way. Uh, but the, the, the scale of loneliness, the experience of loneliness, elevates over the time as that force of coupling and family gets more and more intense. So again, it's like we say we're committed. We say like I covenant, I'm real. I'm like this is the thing, and and we don't. At the, what Peter's calling out is like these challenges, this suffering, these grief, these trials. They actually just filter out who's actually genuine when they say that. And the, and by by us receiving that, we should actually receive that as gift. My suffer- the suffering I experience and the trials I experience, they're gift because of character development. They're gift because I, I have intimacy with Jesus. They're gift uh, because I know that I can trust God in the midst of them. But they're also gift because I get to see right now who I really am. And if I didn't have this, I, I, I might not know. Or I might, my, I might grow in my pride and arrogance about my commitments. So people, in a, people in a, living in the now and not yet but having their gaze on the not yet and living in an exiled position have more of an enduring hope, an inexpressible and profound joy, and, and they have a proven and powerful faith. And by the way, this has been true of almost every marginalized Christian community I've ever witnessed, uh, uh, any time I've ever, I've ever visited a, like a suffering or high-suffering, high-cost Christian community around the world, in the global south, in the global east, uh, in the 1040 window, and anybody that you know who's, who's visited any of those communities to try to learn and be in fellowship and community and come back, what do they say? They say, I can't believe how joyful those people were. They say, I can't believe the level of hope those people have. Unbelievable. It puts me to shame. It puts me to shame. Or people that go there and they come back and they're like, I think I just met Christians for the first time because of that proven faith, that profound, powerful faith. So this is, we can see that people in an exiled, in a marginalized, in a suffering space who are gazing upon the not yet. I mean, they're drenched in the not yet. This is the, the impact that they have. But the threat of gazing on the not yet, you know, we, there's, 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 there's these amazing fruits of doing that. But if we, if we gaze, if we experience that we're in an exiled community, which is debatable, we, you know, you can think about that. But if you experience that you're in like an exiled uh, spiritual environment and you gaze on the not yet, but you don't consider the now at all, there's threats to that. There's downsides to that. The downsides are, you can actually see the downsides in some of the narrative about the people of God in Scripture who live in exiled spaces and are trying to figure out how to live in that faithful space of now and not yet, messianic hope, kingdom hope. It happens in two ways. The threat comes out in two ways. This is true in Jeremiah's time in Daniel's time, in the time of Jesus, and in the early church. In exile, you have your oppressors over you. The church has typically been or believers, the people of God have been pushed to make one of two decisions when they, while at the same time holding on to future hope, holding on to not yet hope. I believe this is coming, this is coming, but what do I do right now? I'm saturated in this hope, but what do I do right now? And the two, the two pendulum swings are to revolt against the oppressors. And that revolt can either look like violence and zealous rebellion, or it can actually look like withdrawal, total withdrawal. That's revolt. It's like, I, I don't want anything to do with that. Total withdrawal. Or re- rebellious revolt. But what that is, is it's, 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 it's complete revolt against the oppression over you. And I actually think that betrays faithfulness to being God's people in the world. For, like his witnessing people in, in the world. Uh, in that oppression. And this is actually what Jeremiah would say uh, uh, when Jeremiah is pushing for a third way. He's pushing for them to, uh, uh, to settle in, build houses, work, live life, and seek the good of the city if you've heard those texts from Jeremiah, to seek of the good good of the city and to pray on behalf of it. That doesn't sound like rebellious revolt, nor does it sound like total withdrawal. See, what happens if we either revolt or we withdraw, we actually betray being God's faithful people and a witness of his love, his character, his concern, his heart, his mind to the people around us. I love this quote. I've been seeing, I don't know who it's from, so I apologize. You can go look it up later. I've just been seeing it around. And and it comes out of the logic of uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You only love God as much as you love your worst enemy. You only love God as much as you love your worst enemy. You say you love God, decide who your worst enemy is, how you feel about that person. That's how much you love God. So what happens is when we're in exiled space, a lot of times people in oppression, they would look to their oppressors as some of their worst enemies. And when we revolt or withdraw, rebellion, violence, or total separation, it actually exposes how much do you actually love, how much do you actually love. So that's one way, that's one way to go, to totally revolt. The other way to go is to actually lose our holiness. When we're totally saturated in in the not yet, living in the not yet, future hope, it's the same, the same kind of pendulum that the people of God wrestled with. Either revolt or they would actually lose their holiness as they try to fit in and mesh themselves in society. Uh, and, and basically to decrease suffering and to, and to elevate gratification and pleasure. To, to just basically give up on holiness. To give up on like the character of God, the commands of God, the declarations of God about our character and our actions but still holding on to this future thing this is going to come messianic hope it's going to come it's going to happen but how do i live right now i either revolt or i just have to fit in and give up and what jeremiah is doing is he's providing a third way and 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 daniel is actually an answer to that third way how do you live out that third way and daniel is just full of stories of him and his friends in exile living out that third way that jeremiah was envisioning they're not compromising they're not revolting they're not get they're not giving into violence they're not totally stepping away. And yet at the same time, they have a high loyalty to the Lord. They have a high loyalty to Yahweh. And every time there's like an ask of loyalty of them that, that would actually make them step away and compromise on their holiness and on their commitment to Jesus, they draw the line. But when they draw the line, do they punch somebody in the face? They say, no, I, I draw the line and you can kill me. It's okay, I give you my life. That is subversive Loyalty. That is the way of the now and not yet. To not revolt and rebel and be in violence, to not totally escape and run away, to not try to completely fit in and give away actually our character and our witness and our holiness, but to actually seek the good of the city, pray on behalf of the city with a profound and core loyalty to Jesus. And when that comes into question, we offer our lives nonviolently. We see these two options at play in the people of God. We see it at play in Jesus' life. We see it at play in the early church. You see disciples whose gaze is pushed toward the not yet need to remember that call to subversive loyalty in the now. Our hope remains. Our hope, our joy, the anchoring of our soul remains in the promises of God about the not yet and the coming. And yet I must obey faithfully God's call on me as a set-apart one, as one who is subversively loyal in the now, and, have, and, and live a strange life and a passionate life and a prayerful life and a dependent life on his strength and his power and his wisdom as I try to pursue what he's asking us to do in the world. So a cultural position of exile pushes our gaze to the not yet, which can have certain consequences, but a cultural position of privilege and prominence of a missionary if if a missionary or missionary community or microchurch is not necessarily in an exiled position but is in a, a little bit of a privileged position in society our gaze can be pushed to the now and stray away from the not yet and that has certain consequences we don't have, actually have very many biblical examples of this because the people of God that carried messianic hope and kingdom hope were always in exile, <laughs> always in exile. So it's, it's more of a, uh, uh, of a consideration of what might, be, what might happen because of that. I think when, you, when we lean into the now, when we lean, because we have a little bit more room to, to dream we, and we, we have the freedom of religion and we're not nearly as exiled as, as other contexts in the world, our gaze can start to lean toward focusing on the now and stray away from focusing on the not yet and the promise and the unseen. And that actually can be a good thing because uh, when we focus on the now, it stirs up prophetic imagination about what God wants to do in our city, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our families. It stirs up prophetic, prophetic imagination about what is possible, what he wants to do. It, stir, it opens up our, our mouths and our ears to ask him for more and to give our lives to the more that he wants. It stirs us to actually uh, 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 yearn for the church to be effective in so many ways and to imagine the church differently in so many ways and to listen to Jesus for calling in so many categories. But the threat of gazing on the now and, and not thinking about as much about the not yet The threat about forgetting about Revelation and forgetting about Matthew 25 and forgetting about the second half of Daniel and not caring at all about eschatology and just thinking it's going to happen sometime. I don't really care how it happens or when it happens or whatever. And I don't really have a lot of thoughts about that. I'm really just focused about now. Guys, that's dangerous because the threat is to your hope and to your joy. The threat directly comes at your hope and your joy. Because when our gaze is focused on the now, guys, having hope in the now is, that the now is as fragile as glass. It's going to break your hope in a day. In the, the, the sufferings and the trials of your life, the sufferings and trials of the community, the sufferings and trials across the nation, you look at all that stuff, and your hope is that it, it, the kingdom's supposed to come now. It's supposed to be like this. It should be like this. I know God wants to do this. It's not going as expected. And it starts to break your hope. And there's some people who could have joy standing right in front of them and they wouldn't be able to identify it. They're so distant from joy because their souls have left the anchoring of God's promises in the unseen and have moved toward what should be in the scene. And guys, having our souls anchored in the scene is very dangerous. It is not a source of joy or hope because sin is a real thing. <laughs> the flesh is a real thing. Evil is a real thing. The work of the enemy is a real thing. And God actually does have to come back to administer the new heavens and the new earth. We can't do it ourselves, actually. And so our hope and our joy is anchored in that promise. We've seen a few prominent figures lose hope this last week. We've seen a few uh, uh, prominent Christian leaders lose hope over the last six months, nine months, a year. I usually wouldn't comment on people publicly. I don't like to do that. I don't like to name names or bring stuff up like that. But they uh, uh, left the faith very publicly. And so I think it's okay for us to maybe talk about it for a second. Uh, But last week, um, two guys in particular, a guy named Marty Sampson, who was a, uh, a songwriter for Hillsong, uh, uh, one of my favorite songs, All I Need Is You. I love that song. I could just turn that on my car for 17 hours and just not get out. You know, I love that song. He wrote that song and he's wrote a bunch of other songs. He kind of posted online this week that he's, he's no longer a Christian and why and, and what that's like and what that experience has been like for him. Josh Harris is another one. He's been a longtime pastor uh, uh, at, at a church and, and he wrote a very prominent book about uh, back in the, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s about dating and romance and marriage and that kind of stuff and kind of sparked the purity movement and uh, uh he he this uh, you know this last week uh came, last couple of weeks he came out and admitted that he's leaving the faith and uh I talked about that the experience and why and what that's been like and what it's like now and why it's happening all that kind of stuff And even uh, 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 Michael Gunger, I mean, this isn't quite as recent as a while ago, but I was just reading some stuff last night and this morning about when he left left the faith. And all three of them, all three of them, when reading their Instagram posts and the, the articles about what's going on, all three of them said in one way or another, now, post making that decision, post, you know, they would even use the words falling away. They would say, like, Christians call this falling away, and I'm falling away. Um... They would say, like, post making that decision, now, I mean, Josh Harris said this explicitly, now I feel more alive, I feel free, I have joy, and I have hope in the future. Experiencing, like, the back end of that, that decision. And Marty Sampson said a very similar thing about, like, feeling, feeling just amazing and free and joyful about it. Now the reality is like, the, the interesting part is you would, only, you would only feel the need to say that on the back end of, of a decision if before making that decision you didn't feel alive, you felt like you were in bondage, you had no joy and you had no hope. So I'm just making clear I made this decision and now I feel alive and free and full of hope and full of joy. So my question becomes, why is it that you didn't feel alive, you didn't have hope, you didn't have any joy and you felt like you were in bondage? And that, it made you have to make this decision. So then you start looking at the statement and you start to look at like what they say as sources of making this decision. And all three of them refer to present suffering, present trials, uh, 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 leaders failing in the church, that's a trial and a suffering, watching people that you respected failing, Uh, um, watching, watching issues going on in the world that are painful to watch, seeing what's going on, maybe seeing the ineffectiveness of the church in certain domains. And therefore, we've made this decision, and now I'm full of hope, full of joy. And what that means, if you just do like the logic flow here, it basically means when my soul was anchored in the now, And I had certain expectations about what this would be like and what my life would be like and what my family's life would be like and what the city would be like and what the leaders I respect would be like. And that hope in the now failed me. Suddenly, I have no joy and I have no hope. And this all feels very much like bondage. And so I have to make a decision to, to, to negotiate these expectations that I have. And now that I've figured out how to negotiate those expectations, I have more hope and joy in the now. How long do you think that's going to last? The, the new hope, the new joy, the new freedom, feeling alive. But, what, but the, the reality is, Peter is saying, not just here, I mean, the whole counsel of Scripture, God tells us, you're going to suffer a whole lot. There's going to be trials. There's going to be grief. So when we experience trials, grief, and suffering, why does that somehow disprove God? Who told us it was going to happen? And gave us the victory and the hope and the joy, the unseen victory, hope, joy, promise, sacrifice to carry us through it. gives us His presence to fellowship with us in the midst of It tells us that our current suffering is not worth comparing to future glory tells us He's going to work it for our good and, he, and we can trust Him in the midst of it. And by the way, God suffered too. He didn't stay distant from it. He didn't say, you go figure that out and I'm distant from that reality, but I actually enter into suffering and I'll actually suffer first. And I'll suffer worse. I'll suffer a suffering that you should suffer, but I'll suffer it on your behalf, something you could never even understand or, or test or taste. I'll do it for you. God does it too. God suffers too. And somehow that's not enough. But if, our, if, our soul, if the anchoring of our souls are in His words, in His promise of the unseen, we can weather this. We can weather this. Because our joy and our hope is not scathed by it. We're prepared even to deal with it. Even seeing waves of Christians walk away from the faith because Christian leaders like Bill Hybels or James McDonald or... Uh, 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 Darren Patrick or uh, you know all these these like major kind of celebrity Christian leaders who were set up with so much pressure to fail anyways and they and they they get to a circumstance where they have a moral failure and then people walk away from the faith what does that do what does that display that their hope and their faith was not in the unseen it was not in the promises of God it was in the success of a leader that they appreciated the moment that that leader fails uh, All of my hope is unraveled, all of my joy is unraveled, all of my faith that I had is unraveled, and praise God, because it should be, because it has to be put on something stable, something enduring, something worth it. Peter says, in all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He refers to our lives as a little while. (laughs) You're 85 years. You're 100 years. I don't know what kind of technology we're going to come up with in the next 50 You're 130 years. It's a little while. You're going to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold... that it may result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the one who is worth it, the one who is able, the one who secured it, the one who, who, who made it possible, the one who broke his life for you, Jesus, in the end. This is the now and the not yet. And we might think of our suffering and trials as proof of the absence of God when he told us it would happen. He gave us victory and hope and faith to carry us through it fellowships with us in it. See, life of the chosen exiles, of you and me, of your microchurch, you as a missionary, as a leader, as a disciple, as a sent one, the life of us chosen exiles is rooted in a living hope in the now and the not yet. They have to be carried in harmony. Our gaze has to be big enough for all of it, all of it not one at the expense of the other. The worship team would come up. I just want to invite us to consider how God is asking us to respond. Maybe this morning, uh, in our own self-evaluation, if we're seeing the leaning of our gaze, if this morning, if we're seeing, uh, and, and he's revealing to us that my gaze is so much more on the not yet, and I think that's true about the now, or my gaze is on the now, True about the not yet. Where are you leaning? As a leader, as a missionary? Where is your microchurch leaning? Where is your gaze? What is the anchor of your hope, of your joy, of your soul? And what is your posture as an exile in this world? And see, in his great mercy, God has given you a new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. God has given you a now, and He has given you a not yet. And is your gaze giving room to the fullness of the now and the not yet kingdom? Are you living faithfully in the tension of the already and the not quite? And some of you live anchored and obsessed with eternity and the coming of the end of the age and the new heavens and the new earth and you can't stop studying Revelation and every time you have a meeting with somebody you want to talk about the end times and what they'll look like and reading the signs of the times and when's it coming I hope it comes right now I hope it comes tomorrow I hope it comes next week can you believe what do you think it'll look like what do you think it'll be like but it might leave you with a lack of yearning a lack of imagination a lack of direct action to our current moment And I think God is daring you to dream about right now. To not devote all of your emotional energy to something that will come later, but you you hold on to that. You hold on to that hope. You You keep saturating in Revelation. You can't read Revelation enough. But to dream with God about right now, to dream with God about your neighbor, to dream with God about the cubicle next door, to dream with God about your campus, about your dorm, about your conference room, about your workplace. He wants to dare you this morning to dream. He wants to, to dare you to yearn, to desire, to hunger. He wants to dare you to ask for things right now, to ask for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven right now. He wants you to, 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 he wants you to walk around in a, in, a, in a mall maybe sometime or walk around on the streets sometime and just be asking, do you have a word for anybody around me? I'll, I'll deliver it. I'll deliver it. Do you want me to pray for healing for anybody around me? I'll do it right now, God. What are you doing? I'll do it right now. That's living in the now. The right now, subversively. To say, God, what are you you doing in this city? How can I give my life, give my body to be a part of it? And some of you have been gazing so heavily and feel so deeply for the right now. And you should. And some of you lament evil happening right now, and you should. And some of you are, are, are praying against things that are happening in your families and on your block right now, and you should. But you might feel like you're barely holding on to hope. You might have trouble getting out of bed in the morning because of everything going on in the world that you're carrying on your shoulders. He never asked you to carry it. You might barely recognize joy. I think God is inviting you this morning to anchor your soul in His promises. Not in what you see, but in the unseen. Not in the right now, but in the not yet. Would you stand with me this morning? Before we take communion, I just I, I wanna I want to to respond with the, to what the Lord is doing in you and us. I want to be able to take a moment to, to, for us to be able to acknowledge and to name and to put in the light. God, this is what I see.